Welcome to an inspiring message from Awaken City Church. For more information about us, visit awakencity.com.au. You know, God has been speaking. I'm sure He speaks in your life and He does that for me too. And you know, this month, we haven't gone with a theme. Normally you'll see behind us a theme for the month and the preacher preaches according to the theme. Now we have a lot of freedom within that theme. But this month, Pastor Chris said, no, you choose. <laughs> no, you know what? A lot of people like that. I don't. I'm, I'm a rule follower. You give, you give me something to do and I will do it well. If you try and tell me to do it by myself, it's scary. So I went to God and I said, you know what? God, tell me, tell me what to preach. And that's the best start anyway, isn't it? He told me to speak about His love. (laughs) But you know what? I was like, but we all know that. (laughs) That's Christianity 101, isn't it? You come into the building, you hear about God's love. We do a salvation call, you know about God's love. I was like, what else can I say about that? We know the story of the crucifixion. We've done that. But I really felt that God said to, to do it, to speak about it and to take a deeper dive into what is the love of God? Do we have the correct understanding of what this in, unconditional love actually is? But how do we not just discover it for ourselves, but be able to give it to others, especially those that we deem unworthy, unrepentant and just plain annoying? No, I'll be honest because some people, they are, they're annoying, aren't they? And they make it hard to love or like even. So let's pray over this Word before I start getting irritable. (laughs) Lord, I thank You for the Word. I thank You that it transforms. I thank You that today it's gonna do what it's meant to do, that each person here will grab hold of it, take it in their lives and actually make the changes possible. For Your unconditional love, we can never repay it, Lord, but we can use it and we can use it well. Bless this Word today. Take out me, give them You. Thank You, Jesus. Amen. 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 Okay, so we're gonna centre everything around 1 Corinthians 13 today. I love 1 Corinthians 13, but it's the love Scripture. Every old school Christian wedding read this out, including ours. And you had someone trot up there and love is, love is this, love is that. Because it sounds poetic and beautiful and we all aspire to be that type of love, don't we? Without fully understanding what that takes. It's a big, big Scripture. So today we're gonna go the whole chapter So you're going to stay with me. I'm not just going to pick just this little verse out that suits me, which we do, don't we? I'll just take out that verse because I like that one. The rest is a little bit tricky to preach on. We're going to do it all. We'll break it up a bit as we go. But I want us to look at this idea of God's love being the greatest. Okay, it's described as being great or the greatest always. But this type idea of great and greatest has lost its meaning down, down the track. We use this word quite glibly now. But I want us to look first at the King James Version. And I'm not going to read from it today, but the King James Version is thought of as being the closest to the original translation. And people don't like it because there's these and thous and doths and stuff that I said to Fonny before. Because what it's trying to say is God's love has 25 different definitions in the King James Version. So we can use it for many different things. That's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot of different ways to describe love, to describe greatness, And it's similar to our lives now. The word great, we use in many contexts. We can say that was the greatest day of my life when my child was born. But we can also say, how are you going? I'm great, how are you? You know, this word great has been watered down. But God's love is always described as the greatest. And what that means is it's better than anything we think is great. It's better than the things that the world thinks are great. The things that have been put up as the highest of high, the, the things that you should be achieving are not great in the eyes of God. It's the greatest because there's nothing like it. 
and nothing in time has ever surpassed it. And as believers, nothing will ever surpass it. We all agree on that, don't we? God's love is greater than life because it transcends life and its sorrows. I love this quote. God is the Creator and the source of life. Because He's greater than life, His love is greater. It's more valuable and desirable than life. It transcends earthly life and its sorrows and it remains forever. The reason I love this quote is because we can come back to that thought when life isn't great, when people aren't great. And let's be honest, that happens sometimes on the daily. So do you know from that how loved you are? Can I ask you that first? Do you have an understanding of how much God loves you? And it's not just about that Jesus went to the cross for all of mankind, He went for you and He would have gone just for you. But this love, this love that He has is not dependent on you, not dependent on your spouse, your kids. It's not dependent on who loves you back. His love doesn't depend on your life being in a certain place or your sorrows in check, that you don't have them, that you're full of joy and that your life is going sweetly along. His love transcends. What that means is it moves above and it sees you as a child of the King. It sees you as beloved, even when your life is a mess. And let's be honest, we come as a mess. Sometimes we're in a mess after being saved. A lot of the time we feel like things are very messy. And I believe that if we can, as a church, not only believe in His love for us and others, the unity we could have through that type of love. What I'm trying to say is that if we show that love to our church family, especially when they're hurting, can you imagine how that unifies when you come along with unconditional love for people who are not acting the way you like at the time, who are hurting, who are broken, and you come over and your love transcends their situation, then they have a revelation of who God is because they see God through you. And that is what we were called to do, to become like Christ here on earth. And this sounds lovely, doesn't it? This sounds like, oh, imagine a church full of us loving, welcoming, beautiful people. But it is hard. Love is not easy. Choosing love is not easy. So I've gone on a bit of a tangent. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to go back to today. Why did Paul write those letters to the Corinthians? Now, 12 and 14 are very different to 13. 13 was put in the middle as a love letter, as a description, a poem almost. But if we look at 12, What happens is if we look at the culture of the Corinthians, they were a secular people. They got saved. And guess what they did? They brought their beliefs, their cultures, their traditions, and they applied it into church. They tried to run the church like the world, which have we ever done that here? Does anyone else recognise that we do that, don't we? As humans, we take our own skills. We take the things we've learned. We try to run church like that. Sometimes it can work. Not everything needs to be thrown away. But what happened with the Corinthians, they started to struggle with serious sin. Corruption and immorality came in. And Paul was not impressed with this. And they also started to use the spiritual gifts as a rating scale. That if you were a prophet, if you're a teacher, if you're a pastor, you were the top of the crop. Anything else, you know, yeah, you're moving down. They not only started to rate it, but they started to teach people how to not properly apply the spiritual gifts, if you like. They weren't doing things properly. They were really focusing on the wrong thing. So spiritual gifts became the goal of the church. Now, Paul didn't like this. He corrected them. He rebuked them. And in chapter 13, this is why we have love is and love isn't. Because he wanted them to truly understand that love was not gifts. Love is not works. Love is not church even. But love is from God and it's an act from us. So he titles this chapter, Love is the Greatest. 
Now, it sounds like a pop song, doesn't it? It sounds like a romantic idea. Love is the greatest. It's very airy-fairy. But when we look at the word love, we have to understand that He's not talking about just any kind of love. He's talking about agape love, that unconditional love that God had for Jesus and in turn has for us. So first we have to understand that, that not any type of love is great or the greatest, only this type of love. I was talking to Pastor Chris before the service and we're talking about this idea of truth being my truth, your truth, our truth, speak your truth. Guess what? There's none of that here. The Bible doesn't say it's your truth. The Bible doesn't say it's what you feel like or at the time. It says this is the truth. The absolute truth is that His love is the greatest. So when we look at this word love, we have to throw any idea out of what the secular world views love as. And that is feelings, that is emotions. That's dependent on me, it's dependent on them at the time. It could be dependent on our money situation, the stress levels, Bobby's character, I don't know, you know. I could go through many things, but that's not love. And that's not what God, God's idea of love is. That's a human idea only. Agape love was based on this unconditional love that was so great that He sacrificed His Son for every single person. The unlovable, the worst of the worst, this love was based on nothing else but being human. All you have to do is be born as a human being to be loved by God. You don't have to receive His love even to be loved, which is foreign to us as human beings that someone would not even receive my love yet I have to love them anyway. Not just love them, but give up my life for them. And I think the common theme in 1 Corinthians 13 is that it has to be supernatural. This is not a natural love. This is not something we do without help, a lot of help. So let's read verse one to three together. Love is the greatest. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I'd only be a noising gong. Noising? Noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. So let's look at the first part here. Can you imagine being able to speak every language possible? You can translate, you can go to any culture, you could be very useful to the world. Can you imagine being able to speak tongues every week, give, use the gift of tongues in a productive, useful way in the church? Guess what, if you're doing that and there's no love in your heart or your life, you're like this noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And what I was thinking of, you know when you're in primary school and teachers would give out instruments, you'd all sit there and there'd be a group of the cymbals, the kids were like, bah, 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 and it was just noise. That's all it was, was noise. It was wild, it was chaotic. There was no meaning to it. That's what Paul's referring to because cymbals, when they're played properly, can be beautiful, I'm sure. But when they're banging and clanging, I don't know if anyone plays cymbals, do they? Is that a real, a real skill? Anyway, if you, if you do, let me know. But what I'm talking about is that noisy sound that everyone's like, oh, that offends my ears. That's what they're saying. You could be wonderful with languages. You could speak beautiful tongues to people. But if your heart is unloving, if you cannot love like Jesus did, that's what it sounds like. Number two, I could be a prophet in the church. I could be someone that every week people come up to the altar and I give prophetic words that are accurate and life-changing for that person. I could truly do that and work in that gift. I can work out of my gifts, right? We all can. God gives us gifts and we also have natural gifts. It's easy to do that. I can even have that big type of faith. I've seen people with faith that 
prays for people with terminal diseases, that believes for financial debt to be gone, for restoration of difficult relationships. I've seen that type of faith. But God's saying, you know what? That means nothing if you can't love. Those things are good in themselves, but if you're not loving, guess what? Don't even worry about it. Don't even boast about it. The last one hurts. The King James Version says that I can give my body to be burned. And what it's saying is the martyrs of the day being burned at the stake for their faith. Can you imagine being burned at the stake and finding out it didn't matter? I mean, it's a pretty big, big commitment to make, isn't it? I believe in you, God, I have faith, but I hate everybody. Guess what? Your body was burned for nothing. That's what he's saying. You can give up this physical body. You can think that I've given up my life for God, but yet you didn't love anybody while you were here. It's a mistake. You see, we view good works or gifts in the church as signs of love. And they can be. Some people serve out of love. I'm talking about Fontaine. I see that Fontaine loves God and loves people. And when she sings, that comes out. But you know what? You could see another worship leader doing exactly the same thing, not for the right reasons, out of a gift, out of good works, out of just faithfulness to the house. Oh, I've got to serve week in, week out. Sometimes we get in those motions of what we're doing, but we don't discover why we're doing it. We can become in the habit of being good, doing good, because it makes us feel good. And ultimately, as humans, we want to feel good. We're chasing happiness. Do you know, most of my work that I do with teenagers, when I call their parents, their parents say to me when they're struggling, I just want them to be happy. That's what I hear. Most weekly, I hear the same thing. I just want them to be happy. And we're producing a culture that happiness is goal. So these parents are willing to do anything to make the child happy. The child can make any decisions, any changes, massive things in their life, as long as they are happy. And I think that's a lie the enemy sells us. I really do. That happiness is the goal. We can become in the habit, like I said, of being good. But when we truly examine our hearts, sometimes they're not loving. Sometimes we realise where we're at. God's form of love isn't just directed for Him, although that's first and foremost. It's actually for others, for us to extend. So just loving God and being up here preaching isn't enough each week. Just loving God and serving on the worship, uh, the service team isn't enough. Just loving God and coming faithfully and being a church member every week isn't enough if you don't love others. God calls us to love Him first, but then the second part is you must love others like I love them. Here's what love looks like. So let's pick it back up in verse four. Are you ready to go with me? Yes. Yes, Mrs. Pike. That's what I wait for in class. No one answers me. So I say it. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. I love how Paul tells us what love is and what it isn't. There is no room for grey in that verse. Why do you think that is? Because if, as humans, if there was room for grey, we would run with it, wouldn't we? If there was a sometimes in there, a maybe, if I feel like it, I would definitely go with it. Because you know what? I am irritable sometimes, a lot of the time. We'll see. I can be rude. I cannot want to endure through the hard times. And I'm guessing like me, you'll see that list and you'll pick out the parts that you go, yeah, I struggle with that. Because naturally our human nature doesn't want to be love, doesn't want to show love towards people. You know, I was listening to that song, um, that old school DC talk song, Love is a Verb. Has anyone? 
Yeah, everyone's looking at me. Oh, a couple of people knows DC Top. All right, I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read you a verse. It's a rap, and rap will not be happening today. So just listen to me, speaker. Imagine in my mind, I'm um, what's his name? What's the rapper? Toby. All right. <laughs> he gave up his life so that we may live. How much more love could the Son of God give? Here's the example that we ought to be matching because love is a word that requires some action. Love is a verb. And as simple as that sounds, it means you must do it. But not just something to do. It's something you have to practice to be good at because it doesn't come naturally. You can be kind to someone once. It doesn't make you a kind person. You can, oh, I'm not irritable today, but then I'm irritable again tomorrow. So what it is, is what it means is you're putting it into practice every day to become good at it. So it becomes like second nature. I see people like Lana who... Kindness is second nature now because she's practising, she's good at it. But you know what? Some of us find it might take us a little bit longer to get to Alana, okay? And I'm talking about myself here so I can say that. Never giving up. I think never giving up and enduring were not my strong points. I looked at that scripture. I thought, oh, yeah, that, I hate that word endurance. Can I tell you a story? No, I'll tell you why. I had a high school teacher. Now he was 60 when he was, he was a sport teacher when he was doing sport. We thought that was ancient. We couldn't believe he could even, you know, move, let alone teach sport. <laughs> and anyway, he loved the word enduring. He would say to me, now he wasn't a fast runner, but he could outrun us, as in he could run for hours. He would lap us. He would run past me and he'd go, keep going, camera, endure, camera, don't stop. Uh, he would lap me, I'd be talking, I'd be walking. <laughs> this was the situation that I was in. So Mr. Thomas decided to make an endurathon at school. That's what he called it, the endurathon. So, you know, teenagers are so excited. What the endurathon was, was 60 minutes around an oval nonstop. Now he said, you don't have to run, you can walk, but you cannot stop. It was, it was horrible. And you know what? If we tried that today, parents would be having none of that. That would be abuse. My, my child cannot move for 60 minutes. That's, that's what I would get if I tried that at school. But in our day, <laughs> back in my day, <laughs> you kept on running. You did what the teachers told you to do. Your parents said, get up, off you go. Now, we went to this endurathon and we did it. And it was boring. It seemed pointless, to be honest. There didn't seem to be much point to it. We're running for an hour for what? There was no winner. Someone, someone, yeah, did the most laps, but it wasn't a race. You know, there wasn't a goal. I just felt like, why am I here in that moment? All these, all these deep thoughts as a 15-year-old. All that for me to get a report comment that said, if Kama's legs moved as fast as her mouth, she would do well in sport. <laughs> but you know what? The joke's on him because me talking and being good at talking is what my job is, is what I do here. <laughs> I was never destined to be a runner, let's be honest. And I won't run again. <laughs> but it's only recently that I understood why He wanted us to endure. That it was nothing to do with running in the physical. That He wanted us never to give up because He knew what was ahead. He was 60 years old at the time. He knew that life was going to get hard, that we would have to endure, that people were going to hurt us and let us down and hard times would come. But if I can keep moving, not necessarily running, but at least walking, at least one foot in front of the other, guess what? God's love comes in and supernaturally pushes me through. So, like I said, I don't run now, but I will endure. I'll continue in love when it's boring, when I'm tired and I need to keep going. That's what I keep thinking of, that word endurance. Verse 8 says this, we're going to go back to it. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless. That's harsh, isn't it? 
The word useless is an awful word, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. When the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. Verse eight is really important. Paul emphasises that the spiritual gifts that the Corinthians put so much importance on would one day be useless. And he used that harsh word for them to really grasp hold of the fact of they'd put them up here and on earth they're useful and they're necessary, but they were never meant to be our goal because one day, one day all our gifts will fade away. But guess what lasts? Love. Love carries from the temporary to the eternal. Everything else will fade away. So don't get any ideas though. We definitely need the gifts working in the church. We want people that can sing and preach and do the stuff well, don't we? We want people doing and working in their gifts. We don't wanna get rid of them. But what we're saying is love has to be the main goal that we work out of our gifts. And we have to understand that these partial things that we're looking at, what Paul was saying, what God was speaking through him is like, we are living in a time where we only have pieces of the puzzle. One day we might understand. And I want us to go down to verse 11 when it talks about this puzzle. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. There's a word in itself. If you're an adult, it's time. (laughs) It's time to grow up, isn't it? As harsh as it is, we put away those things and we say, you know what, God, here I am, send me, change me. Now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. This Scripture, this part here, has carried me through the darkest times of my life. I'll explain why. I've had many moments, and I'm sure you have too, where I've gone, why God? This makes no sense to me. I cannot see what earthly good this is is going to come out of this. You know, people say something good will come out of it, and you think, It doesn't, it hasn't, I don't know what's going on. But when I start to look towards God, I realise that this seeing through a glass darkly or seeing through a mirror imperfectly means that the control is lost for me. I have to lose control and I have to trust that God sees it perfectly. That it's not up to me to understand, but it's up to me to trust instead. That one day it says that God will reveal the whole picture. So we get to heaven and we see a complete puzzle made. You know, when you put that last piece in and there's that sense of satisfaction and it makes sense, that's what will happen for us. But the reverse is also true that God already has the puzzle. It's already made. He's already seen what's coming and what is to come. So He's not working off a partial picture. Only we are. And I think that's where our trust and our hope and our love comes into force when we understand that God sees all, that it's not excused a lot of the things that happen to us here on earth the injustices, the things that we think, this shouldn't have happened to me, that God sees and He knows. I wanna finish on verse 13. Now this verse here is the one that people use the most. It's on signs, people's houses, you know, it's, it's painted lovely, you know, these things will last forever. Faith, hope and love and the greatest of these is love. I've seen people who aren't even believers who have this in their home on a beachy wooden plaque with white paint. Anyone else seen that? It's in gift shops everywhere because people wanna believe in faith, hope and love. People like this verse. And I said to someone this morning, I was ending on this and they're like, peace, hope and love. I won't name names. Andy said that to me actually. (laughs) 
But I laughed when she said it because I thought that's what people take from that, that there's almost like a weakness and a hippie vibe going on. Guess what? God was not a hippie. There's no weakness in Scripture. There's no peace signs going on here. What He's saying is that those things will last, but love is strong. And if you can love well, you will be a strong person, that it will strengthen you and push you forward rather than weaken you and you'll become like this hippie, I guess. The greatest of these is love. Do you know why that is? Because God showed us through Jesus how much He loved us. Through that expression, we know that love is greatest because it's everlasting. We have to go back to the cross every time to understand what love was. The gift that God can't uh, gave us, He can't be repaid. We can only receive it and then use it and use it well. You know, practice being a loving person, practice loving beyond boundaries, beyond sin even, the things that really, really bother you. You know, thinking about as parents, you know, we give to our children in the hopes that they know they're loved, don't we? We want them to feel loved. And in turn, one day that they'll love well, that there'll be these well-rounded people that can love abundantly, that will have spouses and children and just be full of love. That's what we hope for. But you know, showing people unconditional love is the greatest gift we can give them too, not just our children. But let's remember the cost of love. For Jesus, it was death. I think that's so important. He took our sins on His shoulders so that we wouldn't have to carry them anymore. But that weight would have been great. The word great is used well here. We have sanitised the crucifixion. Our art depicts a small rivulet of blood, hands, feet. Jesus looks serene almost, like He's enjoying the process of crucifixion. That's unrealistic. The Word says His body was broken, multiple broken bones. The flesh was torn apart. These thorns were huge. They weren't these little rose thorns like we, and they were pushed into His head. He was mocked, He was spat on. He had the weight of sin. And you've got to remember He was sinless. So He'd never experienced that feeling of what true guilt and shame can feel like. But Jesus did that for us. But He also felt that separation from God. He felt forsaken by His Father in a brief moment when He'd always been at one with Him. The only time I've ever had a small understanding of this is watching The Passion of the Christ. When I saw the scene, His crucifixion scene and what led up to it, I started to really get that we'd made it something that it wasn't. That we'd made it our redemption moment, but we hadn't seen what Jesus gave for us to get there in the first place. All that to say, loving like God, loving people like God is going to cost you. I'm not gonna sugarcoat it and say it's gonna be easy and people will flock to you. It's not gonna be like that. It will hurt. People will hurt you. It will change you. You'll become someone you don't know anymore. Your heart will soften and you'll think, oh, I'm a softie now. I never was like this before. It will make you give and give again. Love isn't easy, but the rewards are eternal. Nothing else do we take to heaven with us but the souls that are saved here on earth, that are transformed by His love. That's what comes with us. Nothing else, our gifts, our looks, anything else that we value, our intelligence even, doesn't do that for God. I think the closest relationship we experience, the love type of relationship apart from us with God is us with our children. Does anyone else agree with me? I hope so. We love them unconditionally, don't we? We cover them, we provide for them and we correct them when necessary. We try and do so much to protect them. But sometimes they make us hard, make it hard for us to even like them. <laughs> but guess what? We keep on loving. 
It's like this internal urge. I don't know about you. I don't know how to explain it anymore, but it, to keep going, to be a parent. You know, you're at breaking point. You get up again the next day and there they are. And then you love them again. And then, you know, you don't give up on them because you love them unconditionally. And it doesn't matter how mean they are, the things they do, you keep showing up as a mum and as a dad. So the biggest question and the last one for us to answer today is how do we love like that? How do we love people like we love our own children? Because that's what God is saying. You have to love unconditionally. So how you love your little cherubs at home, how you fight for them, how you protect them, how you provide for them is what He wants for us in the church too, which is pretty hard. I think the simple answer is you have to do it supernaturally with God's help. You have to allow Him to come in and change your heart towards people. You have to see people in a different light. When you look at someone and you criticise, you think, no, what's good about them instead? You start to change those minds and those thought processes that you've been brought up to believe, whatever it is, and you start to see the good. I want to read you something. Sorry, I'm sniffing so much. It's awful. About <laughs> Tozer. Does anyone know Tozer? Anyone know he's a great theologian? Someone does. Woo-hoo. Now, Tozer got saved when he was a teenager. <laughs> I can't blow my nose on stage though. That's how you do it politely. Tozer was this great guy and he was a teenager and he wasn't saved. And he walked down the street one day and he heard a street preacher. And this street preacher had simple words, just pretty much, hey, God can change your life if you want Him to. Get on your knees, you know, make a change. He went home and he got on his knees as a teenager in his attic and he gave his life to God. Now Tozer had no formal education, but yet he's one of the greatest theologians of all time. His writing has been celebrated which is bizarre when you think about it because he didn't work in that natural gift. But Toza's goal was to transform the church because he saw the church being so much like the world and so unloving that he was concerned. So I wanna read this to you. I once read a book about the inner spiritual life by a man who was not a Christian at all. He was a sharp intellectual. He examined spiritual people from the outside, but nothing ever reached him. And that is possible. You cannot argue around this. You can read your Bible and if you're honest, you'll admit that it's either obedience or inward blindness. You can repeat Romans word for word and still be blind inwardly. You can quote all the Psalms and be blind inwardly. You can know the doctrine of justification by faith and be blind inwardly. Because it's not the body of truth that enlightens us, it's the spirit of truth who enlightens. If you're not willing, sorry, if you are willing to obey the Lord Jesus, He will illuminate your spirit. He will inwardly enlighten you. The truth you've known intellectually will now be known spiritually. Power will begin to flow up and out and you'll find yourself changed, marvellously changed. Isn't that inspiring to think that God's Spirit can do that? The Holy Spirit will come up and on you and power comes out when you choose not to be blind inwardly anymore because it's easier to stay blind, to love those that just love us back, to love those that make it easy to love those that look and sound a certain way. That's easier than to choose to love regardless. At the end of the day though, it's only the Spirit that can open our eyes and enlighten us. And our job is to be obedient to Him in that. So the Spirit will do it, but we also have to work in obedience towards Him. You know, this will change your life if you truly grab hold of His unconditional love. So can I challenge you this week to do two things? to make sure you understand that His unconditional love for you is everlasting, to understand what that really means for you. And then secondly, to start loving others as God loves you. I think those are the two things that we have to grab hold of as Christians. As our church goes through a time of change, only love will unify us. Do you realise that? Hate 
tears apart. Anger tears apart. Bitterness tears apart. The only thing that unifies is Christ and His love. I have felt such a thing about this this week. Every situation I've been in, I've thought, what is your heart for me right now, God? How do I show your heart? And it's not easy because I've had anger rise up and I've had that irritation with people who are doing the wrong thing. And instead I've said, God, guide me. And that's been hard because I've had to stop for a minute. So can I encourage you to stop, to think about what you're saying, where your heart's at. Thanks for listening to this message. We hope it has blessed you. If you would like to find out more about Awaken City Church, visit awakencity.com.au.